This is an AMI podcast. This is an AMI podcast. Welcome to Voices of the Walrus on AMI-audio, where professional readers give voice to articles from Canada's best general interest magazine. I'm your host, Roger Ashby. Columnist Russell Smith sees his two-decade career as an allegory of how the digital age, and especially its omnipresent metrics, has changed what we read. Paul Barry reads, Not Recommended. Russell Smith is the author of nine books and has been nominated for the Trillium Prize, the Governor General's Award, and the Giller Prize. I'm Paul Berry. This is an article titled Not Recommended by Russell Smith from the September-October issue of The Walrus. Last November, I stopped writing a regular column on art and culture for the Globe and Mail, my job for almost 20 years. Nobody noticed. I did not receive a single reader's letter. I had a polite message from my section editor. He was sorry things didn't work out and hoped we could stay in touch. The note contained no sense of symbolic occasion. I knew what I did was no longer important, either to the national culture or to the newspaper's bottom line. To be fair, my columns explored aesthetic topics newspapers typically avoided. I opted not to weigh in very often on big moral questions of race and gender, I didn't cover Roman Polanski's child rape charges, for example, or Gian Gameshi's trial for sexual assault. Instead, I steered readers toward controversies that weren't headline news. I was drawn to the language used to discuss religion on Al Jazeera. I analyzed American Apparel's anti-brand marketing campaign. I dismissed pop music as the most conservative art form in existence. Creative tropes, I believed, were political in unpredictable ways, and just as important to our intellectual landscape as the left-right punditry dailies usually traffic in. When Alice Walker published an anti-Semitic poem, I didn't talk about anti-Semitism, but instead explored the poem's similarity, along with much new verse, to a Twitter thread. For a while it worked. My column netted me invitations to TV news shows. I was asked to speak at conferences on new music and editing. I made enemies, too. When I called school spirit anti-intellectual, dozens of students at Queen's University protested, either by letter or video. Indeed, triggering furious responses seemed my forte. The fiction writer Rebecca Rosenblum wrote in Canadian Notes and Queries that my columns were about starting a fight. But several years ago I began to worry my readership was falling off. I would run into middle-aged people at functions and they would say, I miss reading you in the Globe. And I would say, I'm still there, weekly, in the arts section. And they would say, oh, I get it on my phone and you don't come up on the app. Out in Halifax, my mother couldn't read me anymore after the Globe stopped offering a paper edition in the Atlantic provinces in 2017. I taught graduate students in writing, and I had given up on expecting them to know I wrote for a national daily. They rarely seemed to read newspapers, and certainly not that one. My increasing feelings of irrelevance also came with a corresponding pressure to cover what, for me, were the less and less interesting topics that my editors felt would be better at maintaining my impact. General interest arts stories and mainstream popular culture. That pressure, I felt, came largely from the huge moving electronic graph that now hangs over most newsrooms, tracking the articles causing most reader interest in real time. 
Today, I see my two-decade career as an allegory of how the digital age, and especially its omnipresent metrics, has changed what we read. I wanted to open doors to private clubs. But at a certain point, it became clear that no one wanted to walk through anymore. I pitched the column in 1999, maybe the only time something so unabashedly highbrow could have been conceived for newsprint. The National Post had just launched, and we were in the throes of a newspaper war. The Post was irreverent and colorful. Its style was reminiscent of British papers in which wit was as valuable as investigative scoops. It loved quirky copy. It had more illustrations. Its cartoons were funnier. Suddenly, our national newspaper looked staid. The owners of the Globe responded by bringing in a publisher, battle-hardened in the trenches of the highly competitive UK newspaper market. He brought in a British editor-in-chief. Forty-three at the time, Richard Addis had an affable private school charm and began recruiting writers as much for their glamour as for their journalism. Over lunch, I told him I wanted my focus to be international and intellectual. I told him I would be the bridge between suburban Canada and the violent paganism of Norwegian black metal. I made it clear I wouldn't touch mainstream culture. No pop music, no celebrities, no Hollywood movies. He smiled and told me to start in a week. I was soon joined by Leah McLaren, who began to chronicle her life as a young woman in the city, a life almost completely unrepresented in the old and male newspaper at that time. Lynn Crosby also signed up to write a column about celebrity culture, in which she used a densely literary style to compare people like Britney Spears to heroes of classical mythology. All of a sudden, Canadian newspapers were sexier, less sober, less policy-focused, less Canadian. The economic crash of 2008 changed everything. Print sales were sinking. Freelancers writing for dailies feared the collapse would take them down too. I had no contract, no security. I was invoicing every week for $800, my editor at that time, Andrew Gorham, told me I had to take a pay cut of $100 per week. I was spending a day on the column and filling the rest of the week with other freelance work to pay my rent. I could take it or leave it. I took it. In 2010, the waves of departures started. In 2013, 60 Globe employees took buyout offers. In 2014, 18 positions were cut, including nine editorial jobs. In 2016, the publisher announced he was looking for 40 staffers to take voluntary buyouts. Three years later, $10 million in labor costs needed to be cut, which led to more buyouts. Gorham took one last year. Lucky to still have any regular pay, I stuck at it. I outlasted four editors-in-chief and nine section editors. My beat probably helped me survive. Both at the Globe and across Canada, there wasn't a lot of competition for what I was doing. I was providing a lot of content, content that helped maintain the paper's literary brand, for very cheap. But a new arts editor who came on board around 2016 displayed increasing concern for me. My guess, based on all his talk about engagement, was that he was getting pressure from management about my weak numbers. The Globe had by then developed Sophie, its own analytic software. Sophie tallies how much of an article is read, how many times it is shared and commented on, and most importantly, whether it being behind a paywall spurs anyone to buy a subscription. Articles that show low engagement typically get sidelined in favor of pieces that show more, a measurement that, along with all of the above, takes into account the click-through rate, or CTR. You're looking at your analytics, 
Gorham explained to me, and you're saying, holy shit, this story's got a high CTR, let's move it forward, surface it, share it on Facebook, put it on the homepage, release a news alert, put it in the newsletter. That support is key to keeping engagement up. If we don't juice it, he said, it just evaporates. In practice, this ensures the less read become even less read. It creates what one might call popularity polarization. A few pieces rise to the top, leaving the rest to fend for themselves. With print, this didn't happen as much. Flipping pages, you would see every article somewhere. But on your phone, you scroll through what's being selected for you. And that selection likely reflects a ruthless narrowing of editorial values and priorities. You don't try to do everything for everyone, is how Gorham described it. It's all about swinging for the fences. Don't hit singles. Don't play small bat. You pick your one and you hit it hard. For the Globe, it meant more resources going to major socially relevant projects, such as Unfounded, Robin Doolittle's two-year investigation into unprosecuted sexual assaults. My clever musings on the relevance of the opera Don Giovanni in the age of Me Too were not exactly big in that sense. But I still believed that a newspaper can and should cover both sexual assault and the arts. If I wanted to keep writing, I needed to push my numbers up. So last summer, I paid several visits to the Globe's gleaming new offices to chat with my boss about what I might do. I saw what a contemporary newsroom looks like. If you walk the full floor of the Globe, you'll see, along the pillars, five or six big screens. Even the coffee area has two of them. These are Sophie's HUDs, the head-up displays of the huge brain. Featuring a graph with moving lines, each screen shows engagement in real time with the stories currently on the paper's website. The top line is usually breaking Canadian news, the Fort McMurray fires, say, or the shooting on Parliament Hill. The more provocative political opinion writers might constitute the second line. I was here to see if my 1,500-word feuilletons on machine art in Hamburg or new internet slang could break into those rankings. That idea of engagement, however, made my heart race. It wasn't at all what connecting with readers used to mean to me. If my ideas were being discussed in academic papers, if I was giving bloggers strokes, if I was annoying the powers that be at Heritage Canada or in the upper floors of the CBC, that, to me, was engagement. That was how I measured my influence on the culture. But one thing that Sophie does not weight differently is readers. All readers are effectively the same. A click is a click, whether it comes from your mouse or from Margaret Atwood's. So Sophie cannot measure engagement in my 20th century sense, my editor suggested a new focus. Would I like to be a weekly books colonist? Of course, there was no extra money. I tried for a few months, but my reading couldn't keep up with the deadlines. My editor relented and allowed me to expand my scope and cover varied art subjects, as long as they were Canadian. According to Sophie, Canadian subjects got the most engagement. Maybe so, but the issues I was interested in, the influence of technology on art, or the echoing of long-vanished art schools, were mostly playing out on an international stage. I couldn't find enough examples of these things from Canada alone. I feared that if I had to write about only Canada, I would end up with the do-goody stuff the CBC is stuck with, the shortlist for a responsible fiction prize, or a play about fighting transphobia in Edmonton, not the glamour of a rude French novelist, or a noise and sex festival in Tokyo. The week we were negotiating, an international arts scandal exploded. The Nobel Prize in Literature was awarded to Peter Hanke, 
an apologist for Slobodan Milosevic, Serbia's former strongman who was tried for genocide in the wake of the Yugoslav Wars. Condemnation dominated arts news and blogs around the world. It was exactly the sort of thing I would have been asked to do a hot take on, but my editor confirmed that they weren't assigning it to anyone. The outrage, I gathered, wasn't Canadian enough to merit comment. It was at that point I realized there was no longer a role for me. Most major news outlets in Canada share the conviction that their primary arts focus should be Canadian. After all, foreign papers won't cover that play in Edmonton. Also, people no longer turn to one journal for information. If they want to read up on an international controversy, they have their pick of brilliant critics in The New Yorker, The Guardian, and hundreds of blogs and podcasts all streaming to their phones, often for free. The web, in other words, is awash in opinion. Once I went behind a paywall, even my friends moved on. They can read Hilton Owls, Jerry Saltz, and A.O. Scott anytime they want. One could argue that given the easy access to international opinion, a Canadian viewpoint is even more vital. Why not stake out a role as one of a handful of commentators on homegrown art? Well, there's a paradox in the local-only approach. Canadian artists are not isolationists. They want a show in New York as much as anyone. They readily accept residencies in Stockholm and New Zealand. Ask a Canadian composer her biggest influence and she is just as likely to drop an American or Japanese name as a Canadian one. It strikes me, then, as simple-minded to think that covering only the arts that exist within our borders is to actually cover our arts. Our arts are international. So if a newspaper is national, it must be international as well, just as our artists are. I don't mean to propose that my disappearance should be cause for concern. I had a good run. But I worry about analytics driving editorial decisions. Most media outlets, including the Walrus, pay close attention to what generates traffic. Any journal that doesn't is likely to fail. But trusting that data to curate content is another matter. Algorithms that tell us which topics are trending don't merely reflect trends. They can also help create them. In winnowing out the slightly obscure or difficult, algorithms ensure it can never be popular. If no one is ever told that electronic music or postmodern architecture are significant topics, then those things have a reduced chance of being treated as significant. The newspaper's role as arbiter is diminished. Simply put, if your metrics tell you the provincial is the most important thing, your journal will likely become provincial. In trying to be bigger, you can get smaller, too. It became clear to me that I hadn't been read by my peers for quite a while. It is quite possible that interest in the intellectual had tailed off in the population at large, but I find that hard to believe. The Internet has shown us that the oddest of subcultures and smallest of niches can develop followings, the reading I come across in my social media feeds now is, in fact, more cerebral than ever. The great papers of the world still seem to want to participate in the conversations academics and underground artists are having. No, I don't think readers weren't interested. It's that they were told not to be interested. The algorithms had already decided my subjects were not breaking news. Those algorithms then ensured that they would never be. When I took my final bow, the room was already empty. That was an article titled Not Recommended by Russell Smith from the September-October issue of The Walrus. I'm Paul Berry. You've been listening to Voices of the Walrus on AMI-audio. 
Produced by Don Dickinson. Audio engineering by Sam Robinson and Bill Shackleton. The manager of AMI-audio is Andy Frank. And I'm your host, Roger Ashby. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider giving us a rating and review and subscribe for more. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca. Join us weekly for The Pulse with host Joita Gupta, who brings us closer to issues impacting the disability community across Canada. Watch The Pulse on YouTube or listen wherever you download your AMI podcasts.